Hello and welcome to Sinobabble, the Chinese history podcast. This is episode 7 of the 20th Century China series. Today, we're picking up exactly where we left off in the previous episode, with Chiang Kai-shek battling with the nationalist left and the communists for control over the revolution to overthrow the warlords and establish a unified Chinese government. This episode covers the period 1927 to 1934, which seems like a short period of time, but a lot actually happens, so get ready to be bombarded with a torrent of dates, facts, figures, and names as per usual. So, at the end of the last episode, a split was about to take place in the KMT, or Nationalist Party, as Chiang Kai-shek was effectively stripped of his political powers by the left-wingers, who were keen to stay in the Soviet Union's good books. Chiang wanted to press his advantage on the East Coast and take Shanghai, whereas the left and communist members of the KMT wanted to keep going north and defeat the remaining warlords, unifying the country once more. I think first we should try and understand why Chiang was so keen on capturing Shanghai. So we need to know a bit more about the situation in Shanghai at the time and why it was of such tactical importance. By 1927, Shanghai was essentially a bustling metropolis, an extremely important industrial and commercial centre for both Chinese and foreign businessmen, which attracted a lot of peasants and other poor Chinese from surrounding towns and villages to work in factories in horrendous conditions. The population of Shanghai had trebled between 1910 and 1930 to reach over 3 million, and foreign investments in the city had reached almost $1 billion by 1927. It's important to remember that at this time, different parts of Shanghai were administered by different nations as a legacy of the Treaty of Nanking, signed after the Opium War. There was the International Settlement, jointly administered by the UK and US, and there was also the French Concession, which became quite famous for its cafes and studios, which were used as meeting places for Chinese artists and intellectuals, and still has some famous landmarks to this day. These foreign concessions acted as markers of distinction between the Chinese and foreigners, as Chinese residents in Shanghai were literally barred from entering some of these areas, and many parks did not let Chinese people in unless they were servants accompanying their employers. This rule did not apply to all Chinese, however, as many wealthy Chinese businessmen lived in mansions in the foreign concessions and even socialised with foreigners at the racecourse or in their private gentlemen's clubs. It's probably fair to say that many foreign residents didn't really know or care what was going on in China's political scene, as long as their own livelihoods were protected. However, by 1927, the growing labour movement in the city was a cause for some concern, as infrequent strike action, mainly organised by CCP activists at the helm of labour unions, was damaging for profits. There was also a growing concern with unrest in areas close by, with large foreign populations such as Hankou, which had seen Chinese protesters burst into the foreign concession area, causing panic among the expats, and Nanjing, where some foreign nationals had been caught up in clashes between nationalist troops and the fleeing warlords, causing British and American destroyers to fire on the city to allow an evacuation of expats in the area. No such trouble had arisen in Shanghai yet, but in the underbelly just beneath the surface of the city, dissent was brewing. As with most cities that expand quickly and see an influx of all kinds of people from all walks of life, Shanghai quickly became a den of iniquity that allowed criminal elements to flourish. One of the most important criminal gangs to come up at this time was the Green Gang, 
which was less of a centralised organisation and more of a loose coalition with competing cells that carried out opium trafficking, kidnapping and smuggling operations and ran gambling, prostitution and protection rackets. Several Green Gang leaders were headquartered in the French concession and formed something called the Society for Common Progress, which was really just a front for a group of around 1,000 guns for hire. As we'll see shortly, this organisation becomes critical for Chiang's takeover of Shanghai and remains an influential part of the nationalist regime in the city in the following years. Chiang would most likely have met with a lot of resistance had he decided to march into a relatively peaceful, if tense, Shanghai, waged war on the populace and declared martial law. However, as it happened, Chiang got a lucky break when a labour union strike led by a CCP insurgents gave him the opportunity to essentially walk into Shanghai and restore order. The CCP had been organising labour unions throughout China's major cities, and by 1927 had managed to organise hundreds of thousands of workers in Shanghai alone. Leaders of the labour movement in Shanghai, including future Premier of the PRC, Zhou Enlai, had managed to conduct two general strikes in 1927, bringing the city to a standstill in February for two days. On March 21st, they held their third strike, again bringing the city to a halt by cutting power and telephone lines and routing the police forces by seizing their station and arms. It seems they were trying to prepare for the arrival of KMT troops to back them up in their efforts to seize Shanghai from the warlord Sun Chongfan, but which troops exactly they were hoping would show up is not entirely clear. What happens next is a little bit muddled. It's a confusing few weeks for Shanghai, and the revolution and the whole of April is a bit of a mess, so I'll just try and stick to the highlights for clarity. So Chiang Kai-shek arrives in Shanghai on March 26th. A few days behind, some initial KMT troops had arrived in the city and stopped the violence that was being perpetrated by the union rioters. Chiang immediately starts reassuring the foreign community that they and their assets are safe, while simultaneously conducting a series of meetings with different political and economic figures in Shanghai as part of what was basically a struggle for the city and the revolution as a whole. The battle for control over the future of China wasn't just being waged in Shanghai, but was rooted in the larger context of the revolution. In all the provinces taken by the National Revolutionary Alliance, rivalries between leftists and anti-communists in the KMT government permeated all levels of the bureaucracy. Both sides were struggling for control over administrative functions at the same time the direction of the revolution was being decided on the battlefield and in the top echelons of the Nationalist Party. On the one hand, you had the leftists who were working to rouse the masses, handing out propaganda in the streets and trying to organise more workers to join their ranks under the banner of the General Labour Union. On the other hand, you had Chiang, who was meeting with representatives from Shanghai's business community, KMT veterans, NRA generals, former president of Peking University Tsai Yuen-pei and leader of the KMT leftist faction Wang Jingwei, to discuss how to curb mounting dissent and communist tendencies within the revolutionary ranks. Business owners, keen to suppress further union action, immediately offered Chiang money to purge the radicals from the party, and Chiang, for his part, urged Wang Jingwei to break with the communists and leave the Wuhan government for good, lest he become a Soviet pawn. Chiang was not relying on the leftists to tamp down communist actions of their own accord, however, and at the same time that he was negotiating with Wang, he was also making preparations to forcibly remove the communists from the party. In the first two weeks of April, 
Chang declared martial law in Shanghai and Nanjing, whilst also declaring that he was just a military leader and the man who was really in charge was Wang Jingwei. He was also secretly plotting with leaders of the Green Gang to purge the communists from the party and from the city of Shanghai altogether. It's not entirely clear how much the communists knew of these plans in advance. It seems that Chang was keeping his cards quite close to the chest on this one, relying mainly on go-betweens to negotiate with the criminal organisation and to keep a low profile. The CCP and other KMT leftists did make moves to try and arm the workers, and the leader of the General Labour Union, Wang Shouhua, declared that if anyone, including the right wing of the KMT, tried to disarm them, the workers would be ready to fight back. However, it was clear that no amount of warning could have prepared the communists for what came next. The leader of the Green Gang, Du Yusheng, invited union leader Wang Shouhua to his house for dinner on April 11th, where he kidnapped and killed him. Warning the authorities in the foreign concessions in advance, the Green Gang then moved its 1,000 armed forces into position, and at around 4am on April 12th, opened fire on the labour union organisations around Shanghai. They captured and killed dozens of communist and union leaders, including Zhou Enlai, who was captured but luckily managed to escape with his life. When thousands of workers and students showed up the next day to protest what had taken place, the KMT troops took over and opened fire, killing at least 100 armed and unarmed civilian protesters. The labour unions came under Chiang's control as thousands associated with the Communist Party fled Shanghai. This event would go on to be remembered in China as the Shanghai Massacre, or the April 12th incident. As similar purges were carried out in Canton and other cities, the KMT central government in Wuhan officially expelled Chiang from the KMT, condemning his actions and labelling him the leader of the national bourgeoisie. This was of little consequence to Chiang, however, as he set up his own government in Shanghai on April 18th. With the communists now thoroughly expelled from the conservative end of the KMT, it was now up to the Wuhan chapter of the nationalist government to decide whether or not they would continue to ally themselves with the CCP. This was not a straightforward choice, as abandoning the CCP would mean losing Soviet support and having to capitulate to Chiang, while sticking with the CCP would mean constant attacks on pretty much all sides. Wang Jingwei, the man in charge of the nationalist left in Wuhan, decided initially to stick out the relationship and weather the tide of opposition for the chance of gaining the upper hand over Chiang Kai-shek. By May, the Wuhan government was pressing on with its northern expedition, facing and even defeating Wu Peifu, the leader of the Juli clique, in a decisive battle. However, this push northwards had left the leftist base in Wuhan vulnerable, and on May 18th, a former nationalist ally betrayed the alliance by attacking the garrison at Changsha, one of the cities that formed the Wuhan municipality and the most radical city at the time. Members of the CCP, including Mao Zedong, had been working to convince both the CCP and KMT higher-ups that organising the peasant masses into a force to overthrow the bourgeois oppressors led by Chiang and the warlords was the best bet for securing the revolution. They tried to seize on this moment to rally a peasant army of sorts to fight back against the mutiny, but they were called to a halt by Wang and others who called out communist excesses as the cause of the outbreak of violence in the first place. Many thousands were killed in a violent repression of peasant and labour union leaders in the Wuhan area, which the nationalists did nothing to temper. Anti-communist sentiment was growing among the KMT left. 
Sensing trouble from far away in Moscow, and also wary of his own position in opposition to Trotsky, Stalin sent a telegram on June 1st to his two representatives of the Comintern still in Wuhan, Borodin and Roy. Borodin we've met in a previous episode, but Roy, a young Indian member of the Comintern, is new to us. He's pretty much only important for this part of the story. Apparently, Stalin had instructed the CCP to stay in the nationalist good books for as long as possible, whilst also trying to move them further to the left. He also called on the communists to mobilise the masses of peasants to seize the land from the landlords and to form an army made up of 20,000 communists and 50,000 workers and soldiers. Obviously, the circumstances of the CCP would not have allowed for such a drastic, large-scale action. But as if that weren't enough, for some reason Roy felt that it would be a good idea to show Wang Jingwei and other nationalist leaders this telegram that was clearly meant for communist eyes only. This was the real turning point for the Nationalist Communist Alliance. Wang Jingwei was apparently appalled by the contents of the letter, which appeared to show the Soviets turning their back on the KMT cause. This telegram, along with mounting hostility towards the communists among the warlords allied with the KMT, was the final straw. In late June, General Feng Yuxiang, a former warlord and now Wang Jingwei's ally, met with Chiang Kai-shek to begin discussing reconciliation between the KMT left and the KMT right. After the meeting, Feng sent a telegram to Wang, demanding that Borodin and other Comintern representatives returned home, that the communists be expelled from the party, and that all members of the Central Executive Committee of the KMT in Wuhan join Chiang in Nanjing. There was no turning back. By mid-July, Borodin was on his way back to Moscow via the Gobi Desert, and both sides had called for a split between the two parties. The communists now became the true revolutionaries, and were determined not to go down without a fight. Chiang Kai-shek, on the other hand, immediately made efforts to see them soundly defeated on all fronts. Fighting on the Fujian-Guangdong border to the southeast ended with communist retreat to Jiangxi by the end of September. Uprisings in Nanchang, the capital of Jiangxi, led to the arrest and execution of several communist agitators. A series of revolts that saw communists organise poor peasants to overthrow the establishment in Hubei and Hunan took place throughout September. Known as the Autumn Harvest Revolts, a number started promisingly, including one led by Mao Zedong in his home province of Hunan, but in the end they all ended in failure. An abortive attempt at setting up a commune in Canton in December ended with three or four thousand dead after heavy fighting between the communist and nationalist forces. By the end of the year, the communist as an organised opposition had been pretty much dealt with. However, that's not the last we'll be hearing from the communists in this episode anyway, so just put a pin in the communists for now. For now, let's turn back to the nationalists. So the Wuhan KMT and the Chiang Kai-shek conservative KMT had now nominally reunited, although tensions were obviously running pretty high. In fact, the whole reuniting situation got off to a really awkward start. The main problem was actually Chiang. No one really seemed to trust him. His generals were wary of his domineering and erratic ways. He'd opened fire on Shanghai students and civilians just a few months previously, and he'd made a ton of enemies in the Shanghai business world due to his extortionate methods of fundraising. One of these methods included arresting the children of certain businessmen 
as counter-revolutionaries and then releasing them when these businessmen donated hundreds of thousands of yuan to the KMT government to prove their loyalty. But even this influx of donations wasn't enough to keep the government afloat. On top of this, after several intense battles with the remaining northern warlord stragglers, Chiang's forces were further weakened. People were so fed up with Chiang that when he feigned resignation as top commander in order to secure the unity of the party, the party members actually accepted his resignation and he left for Japan in August in a huge huff. This wasn't just Chiang running away, however. It was actually more of a tactical retreat. You see, Chang's plan was to get married yet again, but this time to a woman who had bestowed the necessary status and revolutionary credentials to his quest for power. If you cast your mind back, you may remember that we've mentioned members of the Song family quite a few times in previous episodes. Charlie Song was a huge financial backer of Sun Yat-sen from his early revolutionary days. His son, T.V. Song, was essentially the KMT's chief financial executive under both Sun and Chang. And after having no luck with the eldest Song daughter, Ailing, Sun Yat-sen went on to marry the middle daughter, Qingling. Ailing, incidentally, went on to marry the richest man in China, H.H. Kong. All in all, an impressive family resume. Chang's purpose in going to Japan was to convince Madam Song to allow him to marry their youngest daughter, Mei Ling. Despite the fact that he was still technically married, as we mentioned in the previous episode, remember the, the syphilis thing? And the Songs were fairly devout Christians. Madam Song eventually agreed to the match because Chang apparently promised to study the Bible. Uh, whatever, it was clearly just a political move, but it's fine. The two get married. Mei Ling goes on to become a hugely influential social and political leader until her death in 2003. Uh, she was actually 103 years old at the time of her death and her lifetime actually spanned three centuries. Her whole life story is really cool, and I like her way more than I like Chang, but that's not really saying much. Anyway, while Chang was gone in Japan getting married, uh, Wang Jingwei and the Wuhan clique ended up fighting with the conservative Nanjing clique over the best way to structure the newly reunited government, which ended with Wang leaving Nanjing for Canton because of disagreements. Everyone else came to the sudden realisation that raising money is actually really difficult and maybe Chang was onto something with the whole extortion thing. Luckily, in December, Chang rolls back into town, newly married, Wang Jingwei retires to France after mishandling the communists in Canton, everyone seems to love Chang now and he becomes commander-in-chief again and he also gets TV Song to work his magic on the budget so that Chang now has a 1.6 million yuan budget per week to fund his army and continue his fight against the northern warlords. Truly a comeback for the books. By the dawn of 1928, Chang was back in control of the government and military and had everything he needed to continue pushing north to complete the reunification of the country. With most major warlords from central, eastern and southern China now firmly on side, the only major obstacle to the unification of the country was warlord Jiang Zuolin, who now had control of Beijing and whose main base of operations stretched all the way into Manchuria. If you remember from episode 4, Zhang was the leader of the Fengtian clique, one of three main northern warlord cliques that were constantly fighting one another for control of the capital. 
He was also heavily reliant on Japanese backing for his continued control of the vast northern region. And it was the Japanese concessions in Jiang's territory, defended by Japanese soldiers, that were the main problem for the KMT forces. The first quarter of 1928 proceeded smoothly, until the KMT arrived in the city of Jinan in Shandong province, where over 2,000 Japanese expats resided. The Japanese cabinet had sent over 5,000 soldiers to protect their citizens in the concession area, and Chiang managed to persuade the troops to disband when he arrived at the beginning of May. Just when it seemed that the Japanese were preparing to leave, a small fight between some of the Japanese and Chinese units broke out, quickly escalating into a two-day gruesome battle with multiple atrocities carried out on both sides. The Japanese called for reinforcements, and by May 11th, the Chinese were forced to retreat from the city. A truce was eventually worked out with the help of the League of Nations, but needless to say, tension between the Chinese and Japanese lingered, overshadowing the remainder of the KMT regime and serving as a portent for the true conflict that was to break out only a decade later. With the KMT continuing to advance towards Manchuria, the Japanese now had to turn their attention to protecting their assets in the resource-rich region. Should they continue to support Jiang Zuolin, or should they act impartial and try and negotiate on behalf of the warlord and the KMT? At the end of the day, Japan, along with the other foreign powers with concessions in Beijing, Tianjin, and other northeastern parts of China, were concerned with protecting their own and preventing the civil war from spilling over and affecting foreign nationals. The US decided not to get involved at all, while the British sided mainly with the Japanese and urged both Chinese parties to follow the advice of the Tanaka government. The Japanese essentially attempted to divide China in two, asking Jiang Zuolin to retreat north of the Great Wall and abandon Beijing in return for protection from Chiang Kai-shek's encroachment. After some resistance, Jiang Zuolin finally agreed, and on June 2nd left Beijing on a special train, which was later sabotaged by rogue Japanese soldiers. Jiang Zuolin never reached the promised land of Manchuria. His son, Jiang Xueliang, took over his mantle in the northeast upon his death, making Jiang Zuolin the only warlord of this period to successfully pass down his rule to a successor. Chiang Kai-shek returned to Nanjing, leaving Beijing in the hands of former warlord and now trusted general ally Yan Shishen. So now Chiang's plan had seemingly succeeded. The KMT was now the legitimate nationally and internationally recognised official government of China and had nominally reunited the country, barring a few notable exceptions. Oh, and the government was formally proclaimed on October 10th, 1928. Once again, the same date that the 1911 revolution broke out, as well as the same day that the KMT armies captured Wuhan during the northern expedition a few years earlier. Chiang quickly took steps to form a functioning central government, and I want to stress the word central here, as the move really was towards centralisation of the regime on a massive scale. The newly formed top body of government was the State Council, a 16-man group of which Chiang was named chairman. Under this were five bureaus, each of which oversaw different functions of government. They were the executive, legislative, control, judicial and examination bureaus. The executive bureau was arguably the most important as it controlled the budget, smaller ministries, provincial relations, as well as the appointment of officials. 
The Legislative Bureau oversaw the Executive Bureau and debated economic and foreign policy matters, while the other three bureaus focused mainly on the education, appointment and oversight of government officials. Officials were given a very rigid ideological training that was heavy on the anti-imperialist, anti-communist nationalism, whilst also promoting traditional Confucian morality and ethics, which we'll talk more about in the next episode. All regional branches of the political council were abolished in favour of a central council, which was under the jurisdiction of the Central Executive Committee. And by that, I mean that the people who served in one body also served in the other, basically meaning that the interests of those at the very top of the government were consistently protected. In terms of national finances, TV Song managed to convince the major Shanghai bankers and businessmen that had been seriously pissed off by Chang's extortionate policies that centralisation of the financial system would be in everyone's best interests. A national central bank was set up, currency was unified, and policies that promoted commerce were put in place that would please these important taxpayers and investors, whilst also allowing Chang to effectively control all national and regional budgets through a 13-man central budget committee. The next priority was how to handle the fairly widely dispersed military, which, at the end of 1928, was under the control of several different generals of varying backgrounds. It was decided that overall the military should be drastically reduced in size, all local armies disbanded and the troops used for labour and reconstruction, and all training and ideological education of troops should be brought under the control of the central government. Generally speaking, rule under the KMT was recognised and respected both by citizens and foreigners. But I want to leave culture and society under the Nanjing government for the next episode. And for now, just turn back to the communists and where they were by 1928 and how they interacted with the KMT government until 1934 to 1935-ish. Chiang Kai-shek was deadly serious about deleting the communists from existence. An obsession, one could argue, consumed him to the point of his own destruction in the 1940s, but we'll get to that probably in a much later episode. For now, let's just try and understand how Chiang dealt with the communists in the early 1930s and how the communists responded. So when the Shanghai massacre took place in 1927, Mao Zedong basically got his first huge told-you-so moment. Mao stood a little apart from the mainstream communist leaders at the time because he felt the base of the revolution was to be found in the poor rural peasant communities who made up the vast majority of the population, whereas top communist leadership felt that the revolution should start with the workers in urban areas, just as it had in the Soviet Union. Leaving aside the fact that the Chinese urban working class was nowhere near as developed as that of the Soviet Union at the time of the October Revolution, Mao's assertion that peasant dissatisfaction could be manipulated for the party's benefit was actually grounded in pretty solid factual reasoning. A series of sociological, economic and historical studies conducted in the 1920s and 30s showed that something had changed amongst peasant society in the late Qing dynasty that meant the majority of people were much worse off than they had been in the past. A combination of exposure to the fluctuations of the global market, increased population pressure on the land, backwards farming tools and methods, and a worsening ecological situation meant that most peasants now lived in dire poverty. Mao had also done his research. 
He had spent a few months living among the peasant community in 1927 and had written a report to the CCP that basically said, hey guys, these poor peasants have successfully thrown off the shackles of the oppressive landlords by organising a peasant association under the guidance of communist cadres in the area. Men and women have more equality now and the evil gentry have been overthrown for a more equitable society. Do you not think that this is something that we should do something with? And the communist leaders basically said, shut up Mao, we're doing trade union stuff right now. It wasn't just a stubborn need to stick to the Soviet model that got Mao's initial plan rejected. Another problem was that a lot of these successful peasant uprisings that took place in the 1920s and 1930s were quickly knocked back by landlords who had managed to regroup and often with the help of KMT forces, take back their possessions, land, and ruthlessly punish their neighbours who had turned on them. But once the KMT communist split was official, attitudes started changing in the party, although really, really slowly, partly because the lines of communications were bad and hampered by Chiang's continuing crackdown on the communists, but also because of internal party meanderings. Power changed hands quickly in the Communist Party after Chen Duxiu, founding member and general secretary of the CCP, was removed from power in 1927 and eventually expelled from the party in 1929 for his collusion with the KMT. It doesn't really matter who exactly the leaders were at what point. What matters more is that they wholeheartedly disagreed with Mao's tactics and actually expelled him from the Central Committee after the failure of the Autumn Harvest uprisings, a development that Mao didn't actually learn about until basically a year later. This was because of the constant attacks from KMT forces, which had forced him and his men to retreat first into the mountains between Hunan province and Jiangxi province, and then into an area of Jiangxi province called Reijian, where they set up the now famous Jiangxi Soviet. While settled in this Soviet, Mao worked hard to solidify his ideology, teaching the peasants about communism, spreading new laws to improve equality among different classes and genders, and expanding the Red Army forces. Just as the army was growing and Mao's leadership was taking root in the area, however, leaders of the CCP felt it would be better to send Mao's new forces out to fight directly against the KMT in Hunan and Jiangxi's major cities. Mao could not disobey, but he also knew that they couldn't win. So after taking part in brief battles and losing, Mao's troops quickly returned to the Jiangxi Soviet. The failure to win the battles in Hunan and Jiangxi cities reflected the larger failure on behalf of the CCP to properly manage any urban uprisings and the spreading communist infiltration and decimation by KMT-trained soldiers, secret service members and spies in these major cities. By 1931, constant persecution by Chiang led to a major exodus of CCP leadership from Shanghai as they rushed to join Mao in his Jiangxi Soviet as well as other Soviets that had been set up along the Jiangxi, Zhejiang and Fujian border on one side, and along the Hubei, Hunan and Jiangxi border on the other, as well as a handful of other Soviets that were scattered around the country. As always, if I've been organised, I will put up a map on the Sinobabble website, which shows where all these Soviets were set up. By 1933, all of the party's top leadership had arrived in the main Jiangxi Soviet, But again, they had a different view to Mao, preferring to keep their distance from the masses and emphasising the unquestioned authority of centralised leadership. 
We'll talk more about Mao's ideology in a later episode, but for now it's important to know that his mass line theory essentially put forward that the masses of people were to be consulted by the party, their ideas and wants listened to, and their criticisms taken on board and applied by the party leadership. The division between these two sides led to the complete sidelining of Mao, and he was essentially put under house arrest until 1934. But the CCP leadership couldn't keep up the facade of not needing the unwashed masses for very long. They were now living in a situation completely different from how their lives had been in the big cities like Shanghai, and actually heavily relied on the peasants for support. Slowly but surely, party leadership was coming around to appreciating the involvement of the masses as an active force, as opposed to just a body of people to be led and mobilised. These peasants also made up the majority of recruits to both party ranks and military ranks, and so treating them not only with respect, but also as if they were a key part of the revolution became very important, and in fact by 1933 it had become critical. In contrast to communist setup in rural areas, the KMT had pretty much failed to secure any base in the countryside, as their rule over the entire country has not yet been fully established by the early 1930s. Chiang Kai-shek knew that to get local provincial leaders on side, a huge effort would need to be undertaken to bring the countryside under KMT control, and in Chiang's mind, this meant wresting control from the perceived radical forces within society. It was around this time that Chiang became completely obsessed with eradicating the communists. Military expenditure for Chiang's government hovered around 40 to 50% from 1928 to 1935, and basically all of that was spent on a series of suppression campaigns, in other words, the destruction of the communist bases in the newly formed Soviets. In 1931, he started up what was to be known as the encirclement campaigns, the first two of which failed due to Chiang's severe underestimation of the communist troops, as well as excellent military manoeuvring under the direction of Mao, who was still in control of the army at this point. The third campaign was halted abruptly, as Chiang had to pull back forces to deal with a situation with Japan on the other side of the country in mid-1932. The fourth encirclement campaign was Chiang's real first breakthrough, and he actually managed to break up one of the Soviets on the Hubei-Hunan-Jiangxi border, although not the main Jiangxi Soviet, in 1933. Now he understood his enemy better. He knew their sneaky guerrilla tactics, and he also knew their exact location. Chiang was ready for his final push, and it was the encirclement campaigns of 1934 to 1935 that really spelled the end for the Soviets. Chiang took a leaf from the communist book and organised ideological training for around 7,000 military personnel around the Jiangxi Soviet. At the same time, throughout 1933 and 1934, he press-ganged around 20,000 civilians into building a series of brick-block houses in the 700 miles surrounding the Soviet that would form both an economic blockage and a base for the upcoming siege featuring airfields, storehouses, roads, telephone lines that effectively surrounded the communist base. After trying and failing to build similar blockhouses to match those of the KMT, the CCP switched tactics and decided to go back to their tried and tested strategy of guerrilla warfare. But by mid-1934, it became obvious that the only solution to the problem would be full evacuation of the Soviet. The Jiangxi Soviet breakout was coordinated by future key party members, including Zhou Enlai, 
Pengdehui and Limbiao, who had to organise around 80,000 men as well as supplies for a journey of who knew how long. The majority of women and children had to be left behind to suffer the will of the KMT military, as well as around 30,000 troops, including Mao's younger brother, Mao Zedong, who were to hold up the KMT to give the first group a head start and possibly regroup with the rest of the communists later, if they survived. The Jiangxi Soviet, which had taken years to build as the last true base of the communist leadership, was officially abandoned on October 16, 1934, the first step in a long and arduous journey that would see 90% of the CCP perish over the course of a year until they could finally find a new home. At last, Mao's point of view had been validated. The urban bases had been lost, all attempts at organising workers' uprisings had failed, Chiang Kai-shek would stop at nothing to destroy the communists, and so now their only hope lay in mobilising the hundreds of millions of peasants neglected by the central government to support the communist cause. In a speech in 1934, Mao laid out his plan for exactly what the CCP would have to do to win over the peasant masses over the coming years, if they were to defeat the KMT and Chiang, finally. The key points from this speech are as follows. Quote, Our central task at present is to mobilise the broad masses to take part in the revolutionary war, overthrow imperialism and the Kuomintang by means of such war, spread the revolution throughout the country, and drive imperialism out of China. Anyone who does not attach enough importance to this central task is not a good revolutionary cadre. If our comrades really comprehend this task and understand that the revolution must at all costs be spread throughout the country, then they should in no way neglect or underestimate the question of the immediate interests, the well-being of the broad masses. For the revolutionary war is a war of the masses. It can be waged only by mobilising the masses and relying on them. We must lead the peasants' struggle for land and distribute the land to them, heighten their labour enthusiasm and increase agricultural production, safeguard the interests of the workers, establish cooperatives, develop trade with outside areas and solve the problems facing the masses food, shelter, clothing, fuel, rice, cooking oil and salt, sickness and hygiene and marriage. In short, all the practical problems in the masses' everyday life should claim our attention. If we attend to these problems solve them, and satisfy the needs of the masses. We shall really become organisers of the well-being of the masses, and they will truly rally around us and give us their warm support. Comrades, will we then be able to arouse them to take part in the revolutionary war? Yes, indeed we will. This strategy would mark the tenor of the communist movement going forward, especially after they had somewhat successfully survived Chiang's effort to annihilate them and set up a new base in the northwest of the country. But first they would have to survive the journey, the long march to their new home in the mountains, which we'll be talking about in a couple of episodes' time. For now, that's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I know there was a lot to take in and I am also aware that there was a really long gap between this episode and the previous episode. Um, If you've really eagerly been anticipating this episode, I apologise. I really can't guarantee the regularity, but I can guarantee that I will keep doing these episodes for as long as I can, where I can and when I can. So in the next episode, we're going to be discussing life in mainly urban China under Chiang's nationalist regime, which is more commonly referred to as the Nanjing Decade. 
we'll also be looking into some questions of philosophy and morality, including the often asked question, was the KMT government fascist? Thanks for listening, guys, and I hope you tune in next time.